The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Inspire Us. I'm Paul Nadeau. Today, I have the pleasure of having Sarah M. Carlson on the show. Sarah served as a targeting analyst in the CIA's Counterterrorism Center, and before that, she served as a counterterrorism analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency. She also completed rotations to the National Counterterrorism Center and the United States Northern Command. Her counterterrorism career focused on groups operating in the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, and she traveled throughout those regions on missions. She was in Libya in 2011, around the time Muammar Gaddafi was killed, and opposing rebel tribes fought each other desperately to try to take power. Her time in Libya was intense. She discusses her mission and the constant threat that she and her team were under during that revolution, as intense as it was, and one that threatened their lives until they were able to escape by land and make it back to the USA. What Sarah touches on is how, under extreme duress, one's body can simply shut down. One of the secrets to preventing that is to stay busy, Sarah says. Her mission in Libya resulted in a great deal of trauma, and one of the consequences of trauma is that it very often leads a person to hiding. What I mean by that is many veterans who come back home from war often hide and don't tell people what their nightmares are or tell others how they're struggling emotionally or mentally. Because for a lot of people who are experiencing trauma or who have been emotionally abused or as in Sarah's case have suffered from post-traumatic stress where it feels like your mental health is spiraling downward, it can also feel like an embarrassing or shameful revelation and the fear of being ignored or unsupported can be overwhelming. Again, it comes down to the stigma attached to opening up and asking for help. In Sarah's case, as you'll hear, she didn't get the help or support she needed from the CIA upon her return, and nor did any of her team. The CIA did not offer her help. But, as you'll also hear, Sarah recognized her need for that help, and received it from her loving and supportive family, as well as receiving professional help. She's a survivor, folks, and she has carried on serving to help others plan for any kind of disaster or evacuation, something she knows about firsthand. In these COVID-19 times, folks, having too much idle time on our hands can cause more anxiety and stress, and recognizing that you may be experiencing trauma is the very first step to getting help. Since leaving the CIA, Sarah has continued in public service with local government in the Seattle area as an emergency manager at the country and city levels where she has specialized in all hazards preparation, disaster response, and alert and warning. So now, I am going to introduce you to the amazing Sarah. 
I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Carlson, who is a former CIA agent who has a tremendous story and now is working on the, the effects of COVID-19. You, you've got a remarkable story. I'm just going to turn everything over to you uh, by asking, how did you become involved in the CIA? You were an analyst. You ended up in Tripoli in Libya during a revolution. If I got that right, you can explain it to us and just let us know about your amazing life and what got you here. So I started out in emergency management as an intern when I was in college and 9-11 happened and, you know, that of course had a big impact on everyone and I knew I wanted to do something more. So I actually started with Defense Intelligence Agency because all three of my brothers joined the military and so I wanted very much to do defense like they were and so I did that for about five years before I ultimately was recruited by CIA, also as an analyst. And then, as he said, I ended up in Tripoli in 2014, shortly after the Benghazi attacks. So it was you know a few months later and the country was still like continuing to destabilize. And I was there as an analyst to help assess the situation. Now that I've left, I'm back doing emergency management. So it's all hazard response. So preparing for anything from a volcanic eruption to a pandemic. So a lot of what I've been doing this year in particular has been related to COVID-19. If I could take you back to your experience in Libya during that time, you were there during what was a very violent and volatile time, a period of time, and you were smack dab in the middle of all this. Tell us about that experience and how it affected you, even being there and watching what was happening to the people who lived there must have been tremendously difficult to handle. Yes, it was, it was quite sad, um, particularly to see the effect on the local population. So I think for people who aren't aware, I'll just give a little bit of the history of Libya, recent, recent history. So the Arab Spring happened in like 2011, 2012, and Qaddafi was the ruler of Libya, he was a dictator, he ended up being killed, and that caused a lot of instability in the country. So it was militias that had sort of taken up arms against him, but there were many different militias, um, and a lot of them were tied to the tribes in Libya. And so we saw that dynamic continue. There was not sort of a stable government. There still isn't. They were trying to pull it together in 2012, 2013, but of course in 2012, in Benghazi, um, those attacks occurred and four Americans were killed that night. So that was September 11th and 12th. So that really sort of, it was a turning point for sure. Um, not only for US presence there, but I think for like international efforts as well. So a lot of countries sort of pulled back out of Benghazi and, and really just kept their presence in Tripoli. And that's what we did, the US. So we had our um, embassy there in Tripoli and you know, I was there supporting that effort. So, you know, when I got there, it was still like pretty unstable, but sort of manageable, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, there was still a functioning government. There was just one government. <laughs> so sort of the way I kind of describe it in the book and other um, talks I've done is that um, 
as I mentioned, there's many, many different militias. And so that created a lot of different sort of centers of gravity or like sources of power, right? So like there was no single militia that could take and hold power. There were many different ones that um, could try to take it, but um, usually another militia would come in and like kick the other one out. And that was the end of that. But as the year continued, the divide deepened and we started to see two sides really form. And so by summer of 2014, the sides had formed completely. There were two pretty solid blocks. Um, Operation Dignity had started in Benghazi with um, Khalifa Hafsar and um, his effort there. And it, it did eventually spread to Tripoli. And so that's when the civil war really started. So the way it started is that one of the uh, militia commanders called and, and said they were going to start the campaign the next morning and they were going to start it by launching rockets at the airport. And the compound that I lived on was really quite close to the airport. And uh, for anybody who's been in war zones or things like that, you know, like the aim isn't always good. And so even though they were shooting towards the airport, we were often getting hit with indirect fire. So you know, there were hundreds of rockets that were being launched. Like once they started, they didn't really stop and it was quite intense and it lasted for, um, we were there about two weeks. We we're kind of stuck there waiting to hear if we could try to evacuate or not. So, you know, it was really like a shelter in place. As long as we had, you know, food and water, um, we were going to try to stick it out as long as we could. And when that became a problem, and then when we started getting hit with more indirect fire, um, that's when the decision was made to evacuate from Tripoli. And we ended up going over land, which was, you know, I mean, that was just scary in itself, right? To try to evacuate over land during the middle of a bombing campaign. Like, they didn't stop fighting while we drove out. And then sort of in the midst of all of that, we were also still really concerned about Ansar al-Sharia which was the terrorist group that conducted the Benghazi attacks. So I knew like part of my job as an analyst was to assess what they were doing. And so I knew they were working their way towards Tripoli and they wanted to use that fighting as cover to attack us. So like the chances of getting ambushed or something like that on the drive out were really very high. Sarah, you were an analyst and you went down during a, a period of time where I guess it was some uncertainty, but certainly didn't turn out to be the revolution that you had signed on to be uh, involved in. Am I right in saying that? Is it you walked in, you did your job? It was, yeah, there were unstable times, but there certainly wasn't the firing and the, and the shooting that, and the bombing that went on after you had arrived, correct? Right. It escalated very quickly. So the revolution was quite a violent time um, and like 2011, 2012, and then, um, of course, the Benghazi attacks. And Benghazi was dangerous the whole time. Um, but when I first got there in Tripoli, it was, um, you know, it was it was lawless, but there wasn't that constant fighting, and that really escalated throughout the year. How did that make you feel? I can only imagine. I was in the Middle East uh, during uh, the Iraqi War, but uh, so I know my experience. But you were under heavy fire. And as you said, when the bombing started and they started to attack the, the airport, which was not too far from where you were, and you're right, sometimes a bomb can miss and it can get directed into someplace else. And that 
that must have been terrifying for everyone who was there and involved. I can only imagine. Yeah, I, you know, yes, <laughs> it was very scary. I was in Baghdad as well in 2003, 2004. So, um, you know, I had that experience where like I, there was more mortar fire. Um, and so like, I had been there when like a mortar came and, and hit inside our um, base and um, like my sleeping area was hit with the um, shrapnel from that. So like I'd had some experience with it before, but what happened in Tripoli was just so far beyond that. It was the much, much heavier weapons. They were using the 120 millimeter grad rockets, which were Russian made. So they were uh, not like not improvised weapons. They were like state provided weapons. Um, and then also all the other like heavy anti-aircraft artillery and, and whatnot. So there was just um, like the abundance of how much they were firing was just crazy. Like you just didn't stop. I remember sitting inside and you could just, like you could feel it and you, you could feel it reverberating. I remember looking like at the windows and they were all glass, right? And you could just see them like shaking back and forth. Um, it was so intense and like the the air outside eventually turned like this like dark ashy color because of all the the just all the weapons fire. So you could smell it in the air and it became very acrid and and nasty. And we had uh, you know requirements for our safety. We didn't have any uh, like the counter battery we could try to like shoot down rockets. We didn't have that there. So um, we just we didn't really have anything other than bunkers. So if we knew they were coming in, we would go and we had, it was a code red. So we'd go and hide in the bunker until the rocket stopped and then we'd come out. But in those two weeks, they, they never stopped. So we had to just, we just had to deal with it and move around and just, you know, sort of hope and pray they didn't hit us. So we wear body armor and I carried my Glock. So I was always armed, but you know, there really wasn't much we could do to defend ourselves. Right. How did everyone cope uh, under these extreme conditions? Under How did you all remain sane as an analyst, as whatever, whoever was with you? How did you guys cope through all this? You know, some some didn't very well, I'll be honest. I think, I think people don't really know how they're going to react in such a situation, in any crisis, really. I mean, from, from war to volcanic eruption, right? Like, you don't really know how you're going to react until you're faced with it. And then sort of the more you go through things like that, I think the more comfortable is not a good word, but you know, it becomes normalized. And so you're able to react better in extreme situations. And, you know, like I've done crisis work my whole life. So it has to some degree become sort of normalized. I think for me in particular, like it takes, it takes a lot more <laughs> to raise to the level of like, an emergency, if that makes any sense. But then other people, um, they just kind of shut down. And I think this is one of the, like the misnomers about um, crisis and um, how people respond is there's this idea that people panic, but actually most people just shut down when they're in extreme crisis. They, the people that I saw that didn't handle it well, they just like, they didn't want to do anything. They would kind of just wander around. They needed somebody to tell them like where to go and what to do and like to eat or whatever. So I think there were different responses and, and not everybody handled it well. I think the other reason, the people who handled it best, I guess I should say, is 
those who were really busy and had something to do, right? Like I, I was very, very busy and I didn't really have time for much else other than, you know, like trying to fit in some sleep once in a while. So, you know, I've sort of seen this again with like day-to-day crises where, you know, like even if like somebody has like a heart attack and, and falls down, like you're in the street or something like that, it's giving everybody like a task to do so that they, when people, people have something to do in response to an emergency, they feel like they have this sort of sense of control over what's happening to them rather than there's just something happening. And so I've, I found throughout my work that if you can give somebody a task during a crisis, they handle it much better. That is a very good piece of information and You've hit on a couple of things there during our crisis here in COVID-19, where people find themselves with hours and hours of time on their hands and they are not occupied. I would imagine the stress is just internalized that much more. And And there is nothing to do, right? That's the other part. There's nothing for them to do. Right. So the idea is to keep active and to keep busy with certain things to keep yourself occupied. And I want to talk more about your, your work with COVID-19 and, and how people ought to be, I suppose, handling this. But before we leave Tripoli, were you supported by your ambassador? Did, uh, did somebody take care of you? Was there anything there that, that gave you the support or the encouragement? Was, how did that work out? No, um, the ambassador was not very supportive. Um, for anyone who reads my book, you'll, I think it was very kind <laughs> to her mm-hmm. in the book, but there was a lot of tension. But my boss, actually, um, in the book, I call him Harbor. Um, he was really quite supportive and sort of, I, I called him Harbor in the book for a reason. Like, so he was sort of the safe Harbor. He was the steady, the calm. I think without him, things things would have turned out much different. And and we really needed that. I think in crisis, you need a strong leader. And, and he was that for sure. You do need a strong leader during crisis. Absolutely. And we were seeing that today where leadership must be strong. And when it's not, things fall apart. When you managed to escape, when you managed to leave and you were you were actually traveling by land. When you got back to the United States after having experienced this heavy fire, were you taken care of? Did Was there the support there to help everybody through the crisis that you'd gone through? Again, no. That's why I did ultimately end up leaving um, the CIA. It was just too, too much. There were, you know, like little things that like, like problems that cropped up afterwards, like getting reimbursed for all our belongings that we had to leave in Libya, like actually took quite a lot of time and effort just to get that. And it was difficult for me because I knew like we destroyed like, I don't know, probably what hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stuff. And like to quibble over like the cost of a pair of socks just seemed ridiculous. There are things like that and bonus like didn't come through the way it was supposed to, you know, things that shouldn't, have happened, but because they did, and it was already hard, and I was already struggling with PTSD, it just sort of it exacerbated how I was already feeling. But yeah, I definitely had PTSD when I got back. I didn't seek help right away, and I would strongly recommend to any any of your listeners to 
go and get help, get professional help if you need it. I sort of didn't want to. There's some stigma in the intelligence community with um, like getting security clearance and all that with reaching out and saying you need help. I let that stop me where I should have just sought help right away. And it has been incredible to go and get that when I need it. My family is incredibly supportive. When I left and I came back to the Northwest um, where my parents and brother and other family live and like my parents said, you know, like stay here as long as you need. Like it was definitely, again, sort of like a safe haven for me. <laughs> and then traveling, I traveled a lot. So I think just getting out of like normal environment and doing something different um, also kind of helped. And he was also writing the book. So that was also cathartic in another way. I understand. And what a sad statement to make to come back to your country after giving that service to your country and putting your life at risk, coming back and not being approached by people within the organization to number one, thank you. And number two, to automatically offer help and counseling and to encourage it. That should be, that should come the moment anybody experiences crisis. The, yes. the employer must, in my opinion, must go and say, there is help. But again, and you touched on it, the stigma of looking for help. What does it mean if I say that I need help? What are they going to think of me? And that is so sad. The employer should have come and embraced you and said, how can we help you? And that wasn't given. No, that wasn't. I, I should say, though, that people did say thank you. It was definitely on a like an individual basis. So it wasn't um, so much like the agency doing it, although they did give us awards for our service. So I did receive that. But again, it just like it had gotten messed up. <laughs> so even then it was like, thanks. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I don't want to discount what they did do because they did provide provide that at least. But you know, that's very different than offering help, which is what was needed. And I think there were other, um, there were other situations where, especially in the agency, you sort of faced very difficult things. Like a lot of, a lot of officers have been killed in the line of duty. The coast attack was particularly traumatic. That was the one where like seven CIA officers were killed by that double agent. Again, in those situations, I just really think there needs to be more done to reach out. The military does a great job, right? Like the U.S. military, I think, they take care of people really, really well. And I don't think the intelligence community has really caught up with that because, you know, it's not a normal thing for us to be at war for two decades and be sending officers into the wars. So I just think they have, they have some catching up to do with how they take care of their officers. I'm surprised that they have not done that. It is, it is so vital to support your workers and especially when trauma and the experience that everyone has gone through. And you described how some people were shutting down with you and for them and for you to come back and not have that offered is just a crime. And the whether it's the intelligence branch, whether you work at a, a supermarket, I was a police officer. One of the first things that our police department did after a traumatic experience was gather everyone together to talk about that experience and to encourage them through an assistance program. And they would tell our employees 
if, for example, if there was a, a, a homicide or, or an accident involving a death, they'd call everybody from the dispatcher to the officers who were on scene to everybody and say, in the next 24 hours, you are, will likely experience some of this, or you may experience some of that in the next 48 hours and watch for these signs and please come and talk to us and we have help that is available. And that should be what the CIA should be doing there. You are putting your lives on the line and you are risking so much and you come back and that's sad, uh, it, it really is. Your post-traumatic stress, is it under control now? Do you still experience some of the effects from your post-traumatic? Oh yeah, I definitely still have a problem with fireworks, sometimes like claustrophobia. So like this last 4th of July, had in like earplugs and noise canceling headphones like as loud as they would go <laughs> so you know just find different ways to try to handle it in the past I've gone into the mountains but of course with COVID that wasn't really possible this year so just try different ways you know I think every year gets a little bit better every day it's a little bit better but you know sort of the way it's been described to me is like if normal is like here mm -hmm. I'm always going to be up here okay um and for people who are not, uh, actually, this is not going to be visual. This oh, is okay. Visual. I'm sorry. I, I can see you. <laughs> yeah, you can see me and I can see you. And I might use this one for uh, you don't mind. But yeah, the hand being towards right. waist on the one hand. Go ahead. Right. And so just different levels. So if, if normal is sort of like a baseline, like, like the trauma is really high. And so like the new normal is somewhere in between. And so that's sort of how it was described to me and and I feel like it and it's true right like I'm never going to be totally comfortable being in a, like a super crowded place like I always am very I'm like sort of hyper aware of what's going on around me and like that personal security part even now and and it's not necessarily a bad thing but it's it's still there it's very much there and I would imagine you mentioned earlier, you have the support of your loving family. Everybody is supporting you there. Are you also talking to somebody else? Oh yeah, still. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. And, and that is so important. When I got back from the Middle East uh, and I, for years, it, every time uh, the fireworks would go off, I would I'd be looking for cover. And so I understand what you're talking about. You, It's something that still loud sounds like that you know, alarm me and I, I can imagine you were under much more intense uh, fire uh, than, than we were so I you know you just sort of if I again like it becomes normalized so it's it's a process to sort of come down from that a little bit and I have a feeling it's I think what I've, I've heard or read it takes what is it, like seven years for every year you were, went through something or something there's there's like um a projection of how long they think it takes to recover um based on the amount of time that you were in crisis or in trauma and it's quite a long time so i'm five years out now oh okay so it's going to take a little bit longer <laughs> wow well, you know <laughs> i send you i send you everything i just i send you my love <laughs> oh, thank you Wow. Yeah, that's, it is hard to get back. And you have now changed your, your job and you are working on what? Tell us what you're doing now. So it's emergency management. Um, 
which again, still crisis. Clearly it's addictive too, <laughs> um, which is a whole other podcast, right? Um, so you were the, you're the one knocking at the door there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now it's preparing for all hazards and, um, you know, it's, it's been fun to be able to take uh, fun. It's been interesting, gratifying to be able to take what I learned and what I went through and be able to apply that now at the local level to help my hometown because I moved back where I grew up. So it's, that's been a very gratifying thing to do. And um, I think has also helped with the recovery. Like I know firsthand what it, what it's like to evacuate. So I know what I'm asking people to do if I tell them they need to evacuate, you know what I mean? So that kind of has helped to put that experience to use. But we prepare for all hazards. So, you know, out here in the Seattle area, we have volcanoes and earthquakes and all different kinds of stuff um, from like active shooter to, as I mentioned, the pandemic. So that's been the bulk of the focus this year. But yeah, it's, I've enjoyed it. It's something that's a little bit different. It's working with first responders and, um, you know, law and fire and like the health department. And so we're coming up with these plans and um, procedures for how to respond to all these different hazards, like the big stuff. Right. Now, uh, the United States is is right now under a lot of pressure uh, with the elections coming on and, uh, and all that. I would imagine that there is some preparation for what may happen after the election. And are in, you- in downtown Seattle, there's been quite a bit of writing, just like in Portland. So, I mean, there's the protests, which are the legitimate you know, constitutionally protected right to mm-hmm. protest. But um, in addition to that, there's been quite a bit of rioting um, and violence and looting. Um, it's still still been going on in Seattle and in Portland. So to a lesser degree, Olympia is actually the capital of Washington state. So like in some of the other cities too. So it's, I think we're anticipating that there might be some, but um, right now, not necessarily making plans for a specific time, but just to be ready for any time riots occur. Right. Okay. Well, good. You know, and it sounds like the work that you're doing is very remarkable. And I, I know where you're coming from. You, you're, you're serving and it's, it's, it's fun to help people and to, yes. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're getting to work with emergency services and different people. And that must be tremendously rewarding to, uh, to say, how much you've done in the course of your life so far, you, you, how much you've, you've served and, and the different jobs that you've had, that's remarkable. Which, which of all the jobs or, or the things that you've done do you think that you like the most? Oh, well, I've really enjoyed writing. So that was actually my degree. So yes, my book is in the dark of war. Um, I really enjoy writing and I'm continuing to do that. I've enjoyed being able to sort of tell the story in a way that I hope will help people. And so to take, again, to take all this knowledge that I know to help protect others. So I've been doing a lot lately with like personal preparedness. So helping people, like individual people um, learn about, you know, like what they can do to be prepared themselves in their home and in their with their family to prepare for a crisis. So that's sort of what I am looking into for book number two to to focus on that but it's really taking all this knowledge again to help people which as you said is is very gratifying 
The title of your book? In the Dark of War. Excellent. And it is about your personal experience? Yes, um, about my time in Libya during the, what we just talked about at the beginning during the um, time after Benghazi up until we evacuated. Excellent. And I, I am going to read it for sure. I, I'm sure it's a, a great read. And I understand what you mean about the therapy, actually, of writing. It really is therapeutic, and it, it is, it's, it's an accomplishment to write something and to finally have something published. It's quite an experience. And I, what, have you started your second book? Yes, <laughs> I have. Yeah. When do you, th um, when do you think it's going to be out? Oh, I don't know. I'm still at the beginning stages. So just working on the outline right now. And then of course I have to go through CIA to get everything reviewed. Right. So that um, takes quite a bit longer. So this first book in the dark of war took several years. So it actually came out this year during the pandemic. So the timing was a little rough, but you know, I just have to go through the process because I signed that secrecy agreement saying that I would send everything through them. So I have to right. do that. Yeah, and you have to abide by that. You're right, the timing sucks. It really did. <laughs> it really did, <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. Bookstores were closed and, and uh, people, you weren't able to travel and to promote your book. So let's do a little bit of promoting for your book here. Where, <laughs> where can people buy Sarah Carlson's story? Where can we buy this book? So it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and uh, Books A Million and Target. So anywhere you can buy books online anyway. Cool. So it's still not in the stores um, just because of all the restrictions, but yeah. I understand. And your website? It's um, www.sarahmcarlson.com. My name's very common. So I like to joke that, um, you know, like if this was Terminator and we had a Sarah Connor situation, like <laughs> I, would, I would have a warning, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, there you go. So you, you want to put the M in there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For right. sure. I think it's classy too. There's a, a program I think that you're involved in called, uh, is it TAPS? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. So I volunteered with them um, as a good grief counselor. So this is for Gold Star family. So that's um, military families that have lost a loved one. So um, I specifically have worked with the kids and they do camps in different locations throughout the U.S. Um, and then the, they have a big um, thing usually over Memorial Day, but of course this year everything was a little different too. So um, yeah, they've done a lot of outreach with like virtual webinars and um, that kind of thing with their mentor and mentee program. But um, anyone who's lost a loved one who served in the military can reach out to them and they're an amazing resource. The for uh, my listeners, uh, the TAPS program that stands for the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, correct? Yes, yes, so and surviving a, members, yeah, of the who've lost military members. Uh, that, that is a tremendous effort and way to go. Uh, so, you, you do some counseling, and, and that's excellent, it must be rewarding as well. Well, it's mostly playing with kids and letting them know they can talk. Um, usually, it's um, reserved for like the mentors must be prior military as well, but because I've served in war zones and then like half, more than half, like 90% of my family was in the military. So, you know, and I was CIA, so they let me do that. Oh, that's tremendous. And, and thank you very much for all the service that you've done. Before we, before we kind of wrap things up, 
what could you tell my listeners that might inspire or help them through these difficult times? You've seen a lot, you've experienced a lot. What could you tell my, my listeners that might help to inspire them? Um, you will get through it, you know, hang in there and it's hard and it sucks and it's okay for it to be hard and it's okay to say it sucks. The difference I think is when you sort of wallow in it and get stuck in it. And I think that's a greater challenge right now when we can't really do a whole lot. So even if it's going out for a drive or just going out, like sit in the woods or in a park or something like that away from everybody else, just to take some time out to sort of try to refocus. And, you know, it's just hard. Even when life is good, it's hard and, and it's just hard right now. Right. And I think a lot of us, we, we exist in a relatively safe environment, uh, you know, and, and sure, there's, there's always something going on in North America, and sometimes it's not always safe. But when you come from a place like Syria, where you see the, uh, the injustices being done to regular people, and I would imagine that a lot, slavery, all kinds of stuff that, that is going on in the world that most of us don't think about. We don't imagine what it's like somewhere else that some people have it even tougher than, than we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think of like my nieces and nephews as well. Like the worst thing that has ever happened to them is like, you know, they fell down on the playground or something like that. And, you know, I just think some things are so outside their realm of experience. It's easy to lose sight of, um, you know, what's going on in, in the world <laughs> and um, focus on, you know, like your home or your family and, you know, if there's something you can do to, to help others, to look outside yourself, I think that really helps. But on the flip side, I will also say that, you know, for my five-year-old niece falling down at the playground was the worst thing that had ever happened in her life. So I also don't want to, you know, belittle that experience for her either. So, you know, like it's, it's hard. And when you get overwhelmed by your own life or by what's happening to you, you know, do something to take control, do something to take back control and um, look outside yourself. Thank you so much for those wise words and for joining me today and inspiring my audience. And I want to remind everybody that Sarah's book in the dark of war is available online and it will be an excellent read of your experience and what you have to share with the rest of the world. Thanks for writing that. When we have experiences like that, it's nice to share it with the rest of the world and, and to give people hope, which I'm sure your book is full of and I, I, gotta, I gotta read it. So once again, thanks for coming on the show and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient.